big thing is I wasn't afraid to fail. Like I'm not afraid to fail to this day. Like I have failed my way to success. And they always say uh, doubts kill more dreams than failure ever will. Welcome to Open Heart Raw Story, the podcast. Spotlighting the raw, honest stories of everyday people leading extraordinary lives. Tune in weekly to hear special guests share and openly disclose their challenges and traumas, along with the pivotal shifts they made to transform their lives, step into their power, and inspire the lives of others. These are the stories that epitomize the hero's journey and stand as living proof that deep healing and transformations are possible. Hello, family. Welcome to Open Heart Raw Story, the podcast where we spotlight the raw and honest stories of everyday people leading extraordinary lives. On this episode, I am so thrilled to have someone who has truly used his artistry as a vehicle to connect and empower people. He's a philanthropist and a mixed media artist who has worked with companies such as Starbucks, T-Mobile, and Adidas Originals. He is also the lead art educator for the Eagle Academy Network, the director of contemporary arts and culture at the Harlem Hospital, and he serves as the creative partner to organizations like City Year New York, the Wells Fargo Foundation, and other New York City public schools in the area. And it is my deep honor and appreciation to welcome Ronald Draper to the show. Yay! Pleasure's all mine, Jen. Pleasure's absolutely all mine. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the time. I know you're so busy working on so many amazing projects. So I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast to share your your raw and honest story. Uh, thank you for the flexibility. <laughs> you know, I'm all over the place. So like, I appreciate the flexibility with my time. Oh, no, no worries. No worries. So for the listeners, Ronald and I met at St. John's University um, when we were studying for our undergrad. And a couple of years after we graduated, I had the privilege of attending his first art show in Harlem. And I was just completely blown away with Ronald's pure talent and the level of detail and heart that he really puts into his work. Um, so, and then all of a sudden it just like your career just blew up and I just started seeing your art everywhere. So it's really wonderful to see people that, you know, rise, like their star rising and you just kind of being a, a beautiful witness to that. So yeah, thank again, you. thank you Ron for, for being on the show today. Yeah. I appreciate you. I completely like, it's funny how people mentioned coming to my first art shows. I don't even remember them. Like I remember like if you give me two minutes, I remember everything about it. But so much of that is like a blur these days. I used to, it's crazy how like your mental bandwidth changes based upon like what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're just actually going to uh, jump right in. So this is the section that I like to call the cocoon, the early stages. So Ron, let's let's dive into your childhood. Let's talk about, you know, how you grew up, the good, the bad, and the in-between. Um, so as I was growing up, I felt like I grew up in a, 
relatively normal kind of like black household. Um, but where the relatively comes in is from the fact that I got grew up not being raised by my mother because I was born in 86, which means chances are if you're a person of color in New York City in the late 1980s, you had your running with some level of drugs, right? And this isn't the 2020s where they're offering all types of levels of compassion and um, sincere help. They were throwing black people in jail in the 1980s. So my mother happened to be <clears throat> one of those uh, young people that they took and threw into jail. And because of that, I didn't meet my mother until I was 32. Wow. And um, so you grew up thinking that, <clears throat> cool, yeah, I was raised by this other family and I had a great childhood growing up, but realizing that the underpinning of that childhood was ultimately a system that was pretty much built to do these type of things to people who look like me. My childhood was a relatively normal, raised in Harlem. Um, one point my mother, brought, well, the mother that I know, that I recognize that my mother raised me, bought a house in Westchester, so I was be between Westchester and um, Harlem on any given day. Spent my life growing up playing sports, Boy Scouts, bike riding, basketball, everything. Um, so yeah, Outside of that random caveat, everything else was relatively normal, to be honest, or relatively, like, good. Yeah. But it just yeah. took that to get me to that place. Mm, yeah. I, I always feel like any experience, in, in even, in the, even in the most challenging experiences, are all really there to shape you to the person that you're going to become. Um, and it's through those hardships, it's through the mistakes, it's through being even exposed to trauma and having trauma that really sort of shape you to, you know, really rising in, in, the, in your purpose in some way, shape or form. Right. So I, I firmly believe that, you know, I, I got introduced, um, to trauma at a very early age with my, my brother's murder and that wow. forever changed me. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was like, okay, I'm able now to really, you know, take that pain and take that suffering and alchemize it to something more purposeful where I can give back and to have a See, podcast it, that's, like this. Yeah. That's the thing people miss, right? That's still, that's still a trauma response. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of trauma responses go un, I say untreated, but you don't pay attention to them as much because they they grow into these beautiful things. But whether or not it's a beautiful thing or a just like this terrible response to whatever it is, either way, it's still trauma responses that I think people don't pay attention to. They're all trauma responses. But some of us miss the fact that, yeah, I'm doing all the productive stuff. Yeah, but it's a response to trauma. It's a response to somebody hurting you and that self-awareness is where you people need to find themselves in order to find a kind of find balance. If not, even the good things will run you to the ground. Yeah. 1000%. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, your childhood and your mom, um, you know, you're not meeting her until age of 32, you know, and understanding like your dad really played, had to kind of play like a dual role of being like the mom and the dad almost. So with the, with the father that, that raised you, your non-biological father, what, what was he like and how has his sort of influence became instrumental to you? Oh uh, man, Ronald Draper Sr. was the coolest man on earth. 
<clears throat> nothing can rattle that man. Nothing can move him in a place where he didn't want to be moved. <clears throat> and for years, I thought you were the exact opposite. I spent probably my teenage and early 20s really being mad at him because he, he definitely wasn't supporting my mother in a way that I thought was uh, the way he should have supported my mother. Um, but now that I'm older, I realize how much I am like him. I'm just an evolved version of him. Then I also think about how much different my level of opportunity is compared to his. He grew up in a much different time where people of color were not given his ac- the same access that I have. So who knows? If you put him in the same space I was put in, he might end up doing a whole lot more than I gave him credit for. But like a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the things that I grew up doing as a kid only happened because of him. So I played tons of sports. I played basketball, flag football, and baseball sometimes all on the same day. And to be able to have somebody to support you, meaning not just financially or just, yeah, people think support is financial, but think about if my basketball games are on the Lower East Side near Chinatown, my baseball games are on the East Side, but after I drive, my football games are probably on the Lower West Side. If you're eight years old, who the hell is taking to all of these things? So my father right. definitely made his time all the way available for whatever we needed, as long as we needed. I wanted to go play basketball all day. He'd bring me downtown to play basketball, the leagues I played in, and sit there all day waiting for me to be finished. So I have to absolutely give him credit for, <clears throat> even com- even when it comes down to the people I've met, I would not meet these people if I had to stay within a bubble of where I live. I know people from everywhere. It's probably because I participated in sports, um, clubs, activities all over the city, but those things don't happen without my father bringing me to those places. And having the patience to kind of sit there and let me do what I do without the pressure of <clears throat> having to leave at a certain time or I just got to be me and be me as long as I needed to be me. And he was just there for it. I'll forever be grateful to him for that. Yeah. And, you know, I've said this on earlier episodes and, you know, it's something that, you know, I had to come to peace with as, as well. Um, with with my father, um, and it's just arriving at that space where having radical acceptance of our parents, whether they're biological or not biological, whoever has raised us, to to come to a space where they literally did the best they could under the circumstances and under the conditions that they had to work with, and absolutely, and sometimes that's a, that's a really hard pill to swallow, right? But <clears throat> it's like that day. That was the best that they could do that day. That was the best that they can do in their lifetime. And and it's just coming to that radical acceptance and having compa- and finding compassion for that. Yeah, I think, I think the tough pill to swallow isn't their act. I think the tough pill to swallow is you realizing that you've been wrong the whole time. And you feel like a mm-hmm. jerk because you've been judging it based on your experiences and your access and your privilege, which most privilege comes from them. Um, you're judging them based on that when they didn't have the same privilege. So you're judging your parents based on your experiences, which really only occur because of the privilege they provide. And you have the nerve to kind of like say that you could have done more with what you had, not realizing they had far less than we do. And what we have is only because of them. So yeah, you definitely like, that was my thing. It was a tough bit of swallow, not because of just accepting my parents is accepting like, yo, I was wrong completely wrong. Mm. And, and just growing up, and I know that you were, you were involved 
in a lot, you know, and you, it sounds like you were very an, an active person when you were growing up, but just overall, did you sort of feel a sense of like security and stability as you were growing up? Like, and how did that sort of look for you? My mother, my the woman who raised me definitely made sure that I didn't know what hunger was. I didn't know, I didn't have to worry about certain things. Like my parents absolutely did a great job like creating security and stability. I, I, I can't even fathom a time where only time I didn't get something is might've been like when I wanted a pair of sneakers that probably were too expensive. Or I wanted another toy when like my mother just bought some stuff for me. So security and stability were big for probably who I've developed to be because I operate in that space now. And as, as an adult who's operating in that space, it's quite easy to see when people don't because your conversations are different. Mm-hmm. Like the things that I'm able to do, the things that I'm not afraid to do are far different than some folks who haven't had the opportunity to grow with security and stability. That's absolutely right. You know, I've had past guests on there that because they didn't have that growing up, that is sort of their goal to attain in their adult life because they know for a fact they didn't have it. So they, uh, they look to that as a goal to kind of have that threaded throughout their entire life. Like they didn't have the civilian security of, like you said, you know, having consistent food in the house or moving from place to place or, you know, things like that. So they look for that and they make that their life goal to create that stability and that security within themselves and also for their families. Like I absolutely acknowledge the privilege that my parents have provided for me. And now my goal is just to make sure my kids are able to stand on my shoulders and do something different. Like just like my mother absolutely, let's say for instance, she built out her, say, say figure speech, she built out her figurative house, right? And instead of me living in her house my whole life, she built out her house and then created a plot of land for me to build on. But she taught me how to, I learned how to build watching her build. And now my kids start out at a different place than I did. I started at a different place than she did. So if my kids don't have a different head start than what I had, I haven't done anything. Like my mother got me to this point. My job is to get to a point where my kids can start way further than even I started. Yeah. Like there, there's that famous like uh, quote that says like you are your ancestors dream, right? Yeah, like, we are our ancestors you know. wildest dreams. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, you know, just going back to, you know, slavery days, like, you know, my, my ancestors were working in the field, hoping that one day that, you know, they would think like, okay, maybe my kin is not going to have to do this. They're going to have a better life. So I'm going to really work hard and tirelessly to make sure that that generational, um, you know, legacy is being carried through where we're consistently elevating the name, consistently elevating the See. Absolutely. So, yeah, if my if my mother walked, I'm running, and my kids are going to fly. Mm, love that, love that. And then just going into you know talking about the moments in your life as a young child. I know that you said that you were exposed to the arts at a very young age. And, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's different because, you know, growing up in the eighties, like we're both 86 babies. It's kind of like, you didn't find like, you know, there's a host of kids that are like, Oh, I'm just going to focus on the arts and theater. You know, most people playing like sports and basketball. 
So in your sort of experience, can you talk about the moments in your life where you found that, you know, as a young child, it was very unique compared to others, thinking with the lens of you fostering your artistry at such a young age? It pretty much took me until I got to like middle school. My, my elementary school was pretty decent with the arts. Like I knew I was able to draw a little differently, but until you're around kids who did not have art that whole time, you don't realize that you're different. So I grew up with art, whether it be from school or just having arts in my life because of just the household I was raised in. Like my mother's an art collector. So I came, I, there's, having art in my house was not a luxury. That's what it is. Um, the different type of art becomes the luxury, right? Like my mom, my art collection is a lot uh, different than my, my mother's in the sense that mine is a lot more informative and probably like a lot more expensive than hers. But without her, this doesn't happen. But it took me to go to a, I guess, a non-specialized middle school to realize not everyone has this. I was like, oh, wait, I thought everybody did this. But it took me until, took me until middle school. Because I grew up in an environment, I grew up in a part of the city where arts was just a thing. Harlem arts was just a thing. And arts isn't just like visual arts or fine arts. It always lives in dancing, it lives in the music. And in Harlem, that's just what it was. But in terms of like the actual, not the actual, in terms of the, the fine art, the drawing, the, the skill work, I probably didn't realize I was different until middle school in which I was, I kind of knew in elementary school, but it became a glaring difference in middle school because not everybody had the luxury of having art up until that time. Yeah. So you learn as an educator, you realize that art is one of those things that people don't, like imagine trying to teach math for the first time to a 14-year-old or to a 12-year-old. That's going to be difficult. That's what a lot of kids were having. A lot of kids weren't getting art classes until they were 13 years old. But mind you, I've had that the whole time. So then I'm, it makes it much easier to kind of see the difference there than elementary school. Elementary school, everybody had art. You have different skill levels, but everybody had some level of artistic talent, which we all do as kids. Um, the, the goal is just to make sure that we keep that. But it took me until I made school to realize that my art was different. And that came in like my art class, Miss, what's her name? Miss Huffy? Ms. Huff, I want to say Miss Huffy because I think we called her Miss Hussy. So the name definitely wasn't Miss Hussy. <laughs> her name was definitely Miss Huffy. This tall, slender woman who was a really skilled artist who would have to kind of give me different things. And we'd be working on one thing and she'd have me kind of work on other things who was one of the people who pushed me into a specialized art high school. Because we, like, in elementary school, Jen, did you hear this? We made a, my class made a quilt. I had made my own square of the quilt, and it was all done by hand sewing. I was, like, seven or eight years old. Wow. I know, that's, that's a, think about that experience as a kid. So that's why sewing and things like building are normal to me. I've been doing them since I was a kid between my mother who raised us in a household with art all in it and the elementary school that I went to. So going to middle school, you think everyone's still going to be like that and you realize they're not. So my environment definitely played a big part in my level of confidence when it comes to creating. Wow. And I just kind of think about like that, that teacher recognizing your, your skills and your ability and pushing you 
into, you know, broadening that. And I think that's like the wonderful things about good teachers. And I say good teachers because you got some bad ones, you know what I mean? You got some, you got some paycheck teachers, but you know, the good teachers are the ones that see the spark in these kids and say, you know what, let's grow that. Let's help to develop that. And I, and I really do feel like, you know, that, that teacher that you were talking about really saw your talent, really saw that spark and was able to help nourish that. And then, you know, I, I think that's a big thing, which is, which is, a, which is a good thing. Cause you know, we're talking about teachers and, you know, and support systems. Right. And I think it's, it really does. I'm a firm believer. It does take a village. Absolutely. Um, it does take a village. It's not just, you know, really set with the parents or the people that raised you in the household. It really takes a village to, to raise. So what kind of support did you have in your life beyond your parents and beyond the teachers where you really felt like you're being seen for your talents? And, and how did that show up for you? Hmm. So for sure, a teacher's family, um, even down to like friends. Friends who know one way or another you're a talent, right? Even if people don't know what you're going to do, they know you're going to do something. I heard that a million times. I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something. And whatever that something is, you'll be good at. Um, so whether it was <clears throat> growing up, wanting to play in the NBA like every other kid does, that <clears throat> quickly shifted to thoughts of like marketing and accounting. That shifted from that into the legal sector. Then the legal sector lived for a nice amount of time from probably the end of college, end of high school through college and probably four years into the, the legal workforce before I was like, not to hell with this. But affirmations, I've always come in terms of support from like <clears throat> even the neighbors. If you're talking about the work that I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of large scale work. So a lot of my affirmation comes from the people of the community. They might not know who the hell I am, but they know my work. But from working with Harlem Hospital to, or even probably the biggest affirmation of work and like my work is being seen and the effect that has is something I didn't realize to about this year. I created some mural in Harlem almost three years, maybe three years ago, I think next week or the week after, three years ago, this next week. And they did a case study on it because of course you, I work, I put my head down, I do what I got to do, but don't realize how much of an effect my work has. But mm -hmm. after they did this case study, it was a case study on how my artwork affected the culture of like that five block radius or something like that. I got to find it. It's something wild. That speaks to the enrollment of the school. It speaks to the tourism in that area. Like my artwork has heightened like the sense of like the overall morale of the whole entire school building. But it took three years to see that. So now that I'm paid more attention to, it, I realize that my work is just affirmed and people saying, oh, I love your work. It's affirming the fact that it changes neighborhoods. And I can say that like with true honesty. Yeah. And it just sounds like, and you know, what a great level for you to witness that your work almost transcended you being Ronald, right? Like you, it, it touched so many people's lives and affected so many people's lives in a positive way that almost sort of trans, transcends you as being you, the human, like that's on like a spiritual level. Of, of that. Yeah, that's something different. <clears throat> that's something yeah. that's going to last yeah. far more than I do. So just um, picking up on, you know, your family, and I know that you earlier said that your, your dad had passed away. So how did your dad's death affect you on an emotional and mental level, Ronald? 
Um, up until that point with my dad's death, like I've never like lost somebody that close to me. Uh-huh. Um, so as somebody, I think I was maybe 24, 25 at the time, 2012. Yeah, I was 25. Um, funny thing is, his passing anniversary is like in four days, so right around that time. But his death was something different to me. Um, I've lost people when I was younger, but knowing that close to me. Uh-huh. So what ended up happening was in a state of like panic and guilt and shock and just sadness, I retreated, I re- became a reclusive. I kind of ducked into my own little like rabbit hole and stayed there, wasn't really talking to many people. But what I do remember as a kid was my mother teaching me about like not necessarily these words, your happy place, but helping me to establish if you're feeling a certain type of way, if you're feeling these things, whatever they may are, if you're confused about your feelings, art is one of the things that you should use to kind of help you get it out. So, mind you, I've never had to use those tools probably for 20 years, give or take. Between 18 and 20 years, I probably haven't had to use that uh, that coping mechanism, those tools. So as I retreated back into that, I started creating, not realizing what I was doing. Right. I just knew that, yo, I feel sad. And when I feel sad, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't like a, an, I'm going to create artwork. It wasn't intentional. It was just, yo, I, I feel sad. This is what I do when I'm sad. And in doing so, like retreating into this space of just having to create to kind of get these ideas, these feelings out, whether I understood the feelings or not, it gave birth to me starting to kind of use different materials to create stuff. And that was when I actually had the time to sit still. My father died in June of 2012. But granted, when you work, you don't have time to sit still and really live in your feelings. When I had to sit still was when I was, my office was closed for like a month almost. So Hurricane Sandy, the date of loss on record is October 29th, if I'm not mistaken. So from October 29th to, I don't know, Thanksgiving is when I had time to sit by myself and really sit with myself and sit with my thoughts but also in that me in that same time, I couldn't leave the house, but I also had a bunch of random things in the house to kind of create. So that was like the perfect storm that allowed this. Mm. I had to be in the house. Um, I couldn't, for one, I couldn't go to work. Then it's not that only that I couldn't go to work. I had to also stay in the house. There's nowhere to go. Everything's closed. And then I happened to have been doing renovations. My father had passed with so my wife and I, or she's my girlfriend at the time, but my now wife. We were renovating the house, so we're talking about all the apartment. So we're doing tape work and paint work and all these things. So I had like a little bit of spray paint, a little bit of paint, and some glass that a friend's mom gave me for these mirrors. I had a bunch of these things that under any other circumstance were just like home renovation objects. But when you put that into the mix with the sadness of somebody who's already been trained to kind of do this with two or three weeks where you couldn't go anywhere with the stuff in the house, what else is going to happen? Besides me just building stuff. Right. But it, was, it wasn't it was just the fact that I was sad of my dad's death. It was the fact that me working, I didn't have time to really even sit with the thought until, I want to say, the end of October of 2012. So it took all of that to really put me in a space where I was able to deal with the grief, but also have the space to create as I'm, excuse me, create as I'm dealing with the grief. Mm. It's it's just so funny. I think like, you know, and I often read like a lot of like spiritual teachings and 
sometimes it's like, you know, what, you know, people have spoken about, you know, moments of, of trauma, suffering, um, you know, even hitting those rock bottom moments. And, you know, looking back in hindsight, those people that had hit those rock bottom moments, look at that as sort of like this moment, this sort of moment of rebirth for them, because they had to hit a low in order for them to rebirth into the person that they are. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it kind of reminds me of that, um, in essence, of what you're what you're talking about with you know going through the grief of of losing your dad, yeah. and it almost sounds like that was like that wake up call to sort of take your life in that trajectory that you're on right now as being a mixed media artist. Yeah, well, it kind of was like, all right, I'm gonna create this artwork. So, granted, this is how fast this stuff happens. This is like I I can double check. I want to say the date of the loss was. October 29th. That's her. The reason why I know that date so much because I worked in a law firm that was insurance defense. So the date of loss was like the date of loss as per the insurance companies. So I'm pretty sure it was 10. I remember seeing 1029 a million times. But from October 29th, if I'm not mistaken, if it was either September, October 29th until Christmas, by then people were asking me for orders and I want this for Christmas. I, this is all like a month and a half, maybe, of wow. just. Hey, wait, what is this? Because mind you, I'm already a popular guy. People knew of me already, but it just became, wait, what is this thing that you do? So anyone who didn't know me from high school wouldn't have known. It was like a, it was like a brand new person they were introduced to. But those who went to high school with me were kind of like, oh, cool, you're still doing art. Like all of us kind of stopped. So it ended up being um, like about a month or so of people who just wanted to do stuff. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to apply for my first like art show, right? This is back when that's what I thought the process was. I'm going to apply with a submit. Mm -hmm. And I ended up submitting to this art show. I want to say it was April 13th. For some reason, that day sticks out. And as opposed to taking like two weeks off, I want to take time off to build out for the art show. Like, let me take some time off because I don't have time. I'm working nine to five, nine to seven, nine to eight some days. I need time to actually like get this artwork done. I have no artwork to show. So right. instead of taking the time off, I said, fuck it. I just took a, gave him my month's notice and uh, just quit and said, fuck it. What's the worst that could happen? Mm. Worst case scenario, I go back to this job. Like at that point, a college degree was damn near golden. You can go anywhere in like 2011, 2013, actually. It was a lot easier to find a job, especially with the connections I had. I was fine. My thing was, I have the time to do this now. I have the opportunity to do this now. Um, for me, it was now or never. Right. And it sounds like you kind of took this as like blind faith. Like I always kind of say like people get this call and this call, you know, kind of starts to whisper throughout our lives and be early in our years. And then they become louder and louder and louder and louder, louder to the point where it gives you sort of this sense of faith that, you know what, I got to step into this because I always feel like the worst thing you can leave this planet with is regret. But that I don't think is even a blind faith. I think when you when you throw in regret into the formula, it becomes whatever this is, I will deal with it because the last thing I want to do is regret. Like mm -hmm. worst case scenario, the shit don't work. I know in a year, but a year from now, I don't want to be looking back and thinking, will this work? Right. Like at all. This is how everything happens. Kind of wild. So at the event in April of 2013, I meet this woman, um, Amiria Leonard, actually. I have no idea where she's at these days, but I'll forever be thankful to her. I'm explaining why. I met her. She bought a piece of artwork that night. 
at the event. For some reason, she didn't pick it up for like a few months. No idea why. But either or, she came to my apartment to pick it up, and she happened to be walking uptown. So I said, you know what? You're walking uptown. I'm going to the barbershop that is two blocks from the school that you teach at. I'm going to walk up too. So we're walking. We're just talking, you know, talking small talk, art talk. Right. And I happened to look because from where we were walking on Madison Avenue, I was able to look over and see this housing complex in which I was teaching art classes uh, maybe a year before. That might have been 20, that might have been 2012, maybe, or like at some point, I can't remember when I was teaching art. I got to look at my archives. So I met this woman after I was teaching art classes that I volunteered for at this at the school program. My thing was, I've never done this before. They, they needed an art teacher. I needed a place to teach art. It just worked. They ain't had no money. I ain't asked for no money. It worked. So that conversation was, all right, cool. It was a, that, This is 2013. A quick conversation. It is what it is. She called me a year later. I remember being in the shower, coming out the shower and checking her, um, checking my voicemail. It was her. And she mentioned like, Ron, I hope you remember me. Um, my name is Miria. I spoke with you regarding your teaching art. Like, are you still teaching art? Because I have this, this uh, community-based organization, this nonprofit that needs an art educator. And I think you'd be perfect. Mm. So that's how that art show that only happened because I quit my job led me to an opportunity to teach at an art program that now that, so here's how this all works in a crazy sequence, Jen, because now that art program, I, this was a year later, this is April of 2014. They brought me in because their art teacher quit with two months left in the school year. <laughs> so I took over from May and June. My thing was, I always wanted to get into education. It's like, yo, if I'm going to do, I remember thinking I can teach math and do art at the same time. Never thought about teaching art. So that opportunity came up. I said, all right, cool. I don't mind teaching art. Let's see how this goes. So from May to June, those last two months of the middle school year, I two things happened. For one, the principal and the kids love me. They're like, yo, can you, the kids are like, yo, we need you next year. These are like 12-year-olds who hate everybody. They love me. Yeah. That's what you love about kids because they're always the purest honesty ever. Yeah. <laughs> if you're doing good, they'll let you know. If you're doing terrible, they also let you know. Exactly. But also... Within that two months, the, the school offered me a contract for the next year. But in that work that I was doing, I got the eye of the Eagle Academy. Mm. Who had mentioned, like, listen, we love the work that you do. Can you do this with our boys? You're a black man. You're a professional. Like, you're exactly what we're looking for. But I had already signed the contract for the other school. So for that next year, for 2014, 2015 school year, I ended up working in both schools. Wow. And then at the end of 2015, the Eagle Academy pretty much was like, listen, buddy, we hear you, but we know you're working at two schools, but what is it going to take for you just to be here? Because our boys love the work that you do. We need you more here. What are, what are we doing here? Like, ultimately, what do you need for us? What do you need to offer you so you don't say no anymore? And all of it has happened because of an art show that I quit my job for. Hmm. Well, it just it just goes to show you, and this is going to be a quote from The Alchemist, like, you know, the universe will conspire to make everything happen for you, and everything uh, is always going to be working 
for your better self, right? Yeah, it's always going to be in direct alignment to who you're supposed to divinely be in this plane and in this space. And, you know, there's no coincidence in the world. Like you meeting Muriel was not a coincidence. Everything was already written. It was just like you decided to take that call to say, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to go after this path. I'm not too sure how it's going to work out, but I'm really going to put my energy and effort and attention into it. And then the universe was like, well, thank you for stepping into your path. Now it's time to start aligning things into your path to take you where you are right now and even further. So that's yeah. just a pure lesson of that. Yeah. All I have to do is ultimately like, so to speak, survive a year, right? Yeah. I'm creating this artwork. I'm making it a year. I remember I was working at Crunch Gym from 530 I opened the gym. So I was there from 5.30 to like 11.30, 12 o'clock every day. And that job <clears throat> gave me a few things, right? It gave me, you know, I still have a whole day when I get off. Um, <clears throat> I was not so much of an early riser. I was up early, but not that early. Now I'm still up at 4 o'clock every morning. Wow. Lucky. As if I'm working at the gym, but I get up at 4 o'clock every morning to go work out every day. And then that job kept me afloat. It kept me afloat for that year where I was able to secure that teaching job and still do artwork. But then here's this, all the artwork for this. So Eagle Academy, if I'm not mistaken, might've been the first school I did artwork in. Like it, this all happened, this is, Jen, here's this. Here's another part of the conversation, right? That um, I remember speaking with the principal. He was saying, listen, we love the work that you do. How do we pay you? Hmm. Said, normally you work, we work for a community-based organization. We'll pay them, they pay you. His thing was, like, how do we empower you to do your own thing? Like, in a few years, you can be doing this by yourself. You do not need another organization. So he put that bug in my ear. So I was able to submit for um, a city vendor license, which allows me to do work for the city, like, as a paid vendor. So I was able to teach, but then it also allowed me to do artwork in schools. So without that second contract without that Eagle Academy offering me the job, I never would even thought to be, I never would even know what a city vendor was. I'm telling you, there's no accidents in the world. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And anytime that we try to figure out the coincidences, it's something that goes way beyond us. And that's just the, the subtle signs and the confidence to know that you are on the right path. That yeah. So listen, this, this is a path that was carved for me. Like exactly. it, it, it is so sequential that it, that what else was going to happen? Like everything happened. It was such a finely tuned. It's like making, yo, you get to the, you're on an air flight, you're on a flight. You got 20 minutes to get there. Everything works in your favor for you to kind of get that. So it took all, took all of these things to happen to create this perfect storm of an opportunity yeah. that all build on, like everything is literally built on the, each other for the last, like, what, 2021? Probably for the last six years, probably. Probably more than that. Yeah. Probably the last seven, seven, eight years. Things just been building on top of another. Like, nothing is separate from the other. Everything is built on top of the next. Like, nothing I do, no moves I make are, are like, tangential. They're not, like, separate. They're, everything is based off the, the foundation from the step before. Mm. And just even going into, you know, I think, especially when we're early on our paths and it's so unfamiliar, you know, some people have experienced doubt, right, about the direction that their new life is going to take because it's unfamiliar, we're uncomfortable, 
um, in this space because we don't know how to navigate. It's very, very new. So for you, Ronald, and maybe the listeners want to know, and especially if they're setting out on their path, you know, did you have or feel any sense of uncertainty or had any doubts about the direction? And if you did, what gave you the power and the inspiration to overcome your doubts and and persevere? Well, I think we all have doubts. Um, But the difference is I have doubts, but it still was, I guess I was naive enough to think I'm still going to make this work because I have enough, I felt like I had enough confidence. Big thing is I wasn't afraid to fail. Like, I'm not afraid to fail to this day. Like, I have failed my way to success. <laughs> I love that. And they always say uh, doubts kill more dreams than failure ever will. Like, I am absolutely not afraid to fail. Like, I'd rather fail than regret not trying. So that's part of where my, <clears throat> the security in my upbringing created a, enough of a parachute that if I failed, I was still okay. It wasn't, well, if I don't go to work and do this at 15 years old, my family doesn't eat. I got to try things, not like it, and be like, all right, cool. I'm still alive to tell the story about it. But the security in my upbringing gave me the space to be able to take chances and not worry about failing. Mm-hmm. I never felt that things weren't going to be okay. Things were always going to be okay to some degree. And that level of just confidence would allow me to just go into it, doubts or not. Because people all have doubts. But what are you going to do about it is, the, is what counts. Exactly. That's exactly right. And if you have doubts, like no one is 100% confident going into anything. You have doubts, but you just have, um, what is it? One of my favorite quotes is, well, no, confidence is not knowing you're going to be right. You're just not being afraid to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not afraid. I don't, I don't know I'm going to be right. I'm just not afraid to be wrong. Yeah. And, and even I had, um, I follow this woman, Rachel Rogers, who is an entrepreneur. She, and she's teaching other women how to step into their sort of abundance mindset and really start to develop wealth. And she said something that like really stayed with me. And she was talking about confidence. And she says, the formula for confidence is courage plus consistency equals confidence. So when you, um, when you became like this artist and really stepped into this, you're stepping into being an educator and, you know, being a philanthropist, what were sort of like your main soul goals? And these are goals that were sort of connected to your soul. Um, well, the main thing is just making sure like I'm always, always present and showing up for black kids. I want to give black kids cool shit. So I understand at this point between the work that I've done with schools and just the work I've done in New York City overall, that there's a clear equity gap when it comes to um, kids of color and their educational experiences versus their like non-color or non-people of color counterparts. Mm -hmm. So my goal has been to always show up, whether that be my money, that be my time, that be my resources for like black kids. The goal is to absolutely help create that balance because we can't rely on anyone else. We can't rely on the people who created the imbalance to help balance it out. So that, that fight, that energy, that, um, that, that pouring into has to come from within. Yes. So one of my biggest things is always, always, always trying to work, on, work at my little corner um, and doing what I can to help, help just black education, period. 
whether that's creating murals, whether that's designing a powerful school and helping to kind of change how kids feel in their school buildings. And, you know, I love what you said about that. And you're showing that, you know, in the work that you've done, you know, whether it's young, young gifted in Harlem and even this year, a firm black genius, which is all about, you know, cultivating this art culture among students like you you really are doing it and you're, you're doing the work and it, and it fully shows. And, you know, I think a lot of times people think about like, oh, I'm going to do something on a large scale and that's going to be deemed success. It's just like, no, you work work within the world that you feel that your talents and your personality can come through. And that's how you give back. And I think that's what you're really doing in, in a very, you know, substantive way. And yeah, I think and that adds up. There's still snowballs because at first it was me donating murals and then it became like sponsoring, like help, like paying tuition. It, I get grows to so many different things. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't been one thing, it all snowballs, but all of it is based on artwork and like me donating to causes that I believe in. That's great. Like I sit on the board of I sit on the board of two organizations that I firmly believe in, one being children's rights that fights for the positive outcomes of kids in foster care. As a kid from foster care, I clearly believe in that. Mm-hmm. Second, Harlem Grown is an organization that um fights to help close the opportunity and the food gap with a whole bunch of black families who can't afford to necessarily eat healthy. So they create, they have urban gardens all over Harlem. But a lot of my money goes to the organizations that I work with. A lot of my resources goes to orgs that I work with. A lot of, of my time and energy. And like I said, I put my money where my mouth is. I don't play that. Goes to donating to things that I absolutely, absolutely believe in. Yeah. And it's because of the work that I've done that I have the luxury of being able to write checks when I need to, how I need to, to who I need to. Yeah. And just coming back to that soul goal, that, that intention and to really sort of give back. And I always feel like there's those moments. Um, and this is a, a great sort of segue into the next question where you feel like, and we talked about it early on the podcast where your work felt like it just transcended the human experience. So, you know, other than the the time that you mentioned earlier, can you talk about to, to the listeners about maybe another time where you knew that your work transcended the human experience and that you were truly carrying out your spiritual assignment. Any stories you can share, any anecdotes would be, would be great. This was summer, I want to say 2015, maybe. I remember summer was hot as hell outside. <laughs> yeah. I created this piece of artwork in my studio. Um, it was a James Baldwin theme piece. That's back when I was kind of doing a lot of like the, the celebrity based collage work. And the quote, if I can remember correctly, was to be a Negro and to be relatively conscious means to be means that you're in a state of rage all of the time. And that piece in itself was really special because if you look at the details, James Baldwin himself is smoking a cigarette, but all the paper I collaged on the artwork was paper I burned first. Mm. Um, and I remember, don't remember what happened. I know where that piece is. I know who owns it. I'm trying to think what happened that I almost got rid of, almost sold it. But she came in, this client came in, or she wasn't even a client then. She had come. This, I think I met her because I needed software on my computer and I couldn't afford it. So she was helping me to like break and get the software. 
And I had met her then, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if she's, I don't want to throw her name out there. If she's listening, I'm sorry if I got that story wrong. It might have been the opposite. But I do know she did not come to meet me to buy work. But she saw that piece of artwork and started crying. Like, I'm sitting at my desk. I don't know what she said. I just started panicking. Yo, what happened? Oh, shit. Wait, what? What's going on? And then she explained how many different, uh, how many different levels that, peach ha- that piece had touched her. And she felt, and mind you, I've never met this woman in my life. But she felt open enough and, yeah, open enough to actually, like, share those feelings, like, with me, a person she's never met. Mm. And I have, that happens a lot where people are not necessarily crying, but always sharing their feelings, like, being that vulnerable. I'm always asking, like, why do people feel so vulnerable with me? But that's because I am so vulnerable in my artwork that people feel like I've already, I've already given them my heart anyway. So they might as well join in. Yes. That reminds me of... Um of uh, a quote that Rain Wilson said from The Office. Um, and he's like, please do on The Office, that he said, yeah. art is prayer. And art is absolutely, this is what I feel. And you guys are just getting a finished, like art is a finished product because you're getting how I feel. It's not like we're, we're not creating things that are help. Like by the time an art piece is finished, that thought is probably finished. Mm. And a lot of the times we're creating and exercising our ability to kind of find our way and navigate that thought as we're creating it. But the finish line for the art piece is usually the finished thought. At least for me, it is. That's a great way. I never really thought about it like that, but that is just, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense, right? It's just like even when people journal, right? You're journaling in the moment that, you know, you're reflecting, you're, you're in that space, you're in that feeling, yeah. you're, you're in that headspace. And you you put it out all on this piece of paper, and then you're like, oh, that's what I felt. And some people write their feelings in that space. Some people listen to music. Some people write poetry, and they're like, that was how I felt, and I was done with it. It was like a release, if you will. Um, Absolutely, like it re- it's, it's the idea coming out. That's what art is. Like, yeah, I got this idea. I have to get this out. Absolutely. So you you are adding to the narrative around the idea of an artist being in control of their own destiny. So how do you put that statement into practice with the work that you do with kids? They understand the world is a world's a wild place, but also the fact that I'm going to give you all, every resource I absolutely have, my students have access to. Um, them understanding that the world is theirs, right? And not just telling them that and saying, you know, go, we've all heard this like graduation from high school, college, go conquer the world, go do these things. It's like, yeah, go do these things, but also I am always here for you as a resource. Mm. Um, like two thirds of my team now are former students of mine. So it's not that I'm just saying, you know, go attack the world. It's like, go attack the world and let me give you these weapons to do it. Um, but my students absolutely know these are past students. These are 15-year-olds. These are 25-year-olds. They know that I am here and call me with any research. Anything you need, you call me. Like, it's all about pouring into everybody. But, yeah, it's, it's easy to say that, you know, the world is, you, have, you can control your own destiny and also not offer yourself as a way to kind of make those things happen. That's... That's a little empty to me. That's why I hate going to graduation and say people love saying, go conquer the world. Well, how the hell are you going to help me conquer this world, sir or ma'am? Right. 
So I like to absolutely put the action behind it. Like I said, my students absolutely know to call me whenever. Like anytime I need extra labor for jobs, I'm calling former students of mine. Like they might not always be available, but they're the first people that I call. Mm-hmm. Like two thirds, two thirds of my team is former students of mine who work on my production side, my fabrication side, my inventory management, all former students of mine that I've hired to work for me. So it's not just a, yo, you know, do this great thing. That too, um, which I always try to lead by example. And if you need me, you need me, whether you're trying to work for me or you're trying to be put in a particular industry, call me, I will find out wherever I can. Like the world is theirs. Like it was for me too. I firmly believe that the world is mine to do what I want and I'm controlling my own destiny. But I only, but I, I didn't have that many resources growing up. So why the hell wouldn't I want to share with some young people trying to do the same thing I was trying to do? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in the art field, but I didn't make all these connections to keep them to myself. Yeah. But a lot of people do that these days where they just have these resources and it's all mine. It's all mine. What the hell is the point? You want to talk about closing wealth and achievement gaps, that starts with sharing. How about we close the information gap? If you have information, share it. But then again, if you get back to the idea of systemic equality is to keep people so tight to what they have because they're afraid of whenever something else may or may not come. So if if you know that this resource is tied directly to you feeding your family, you might be a little tight with that too. So I can't blame them either for those who are not sharing, but it's almost like we collectively have to all let go to make sure we're all doing better. Mm. But it's tough to be selfless when you have no choice but to be selfish. But I've had the benefit, I've had the privilege of having security, which allows me to be a lot more selfless. Not saying that's the only way it happens, but it make, does make it easier. Yeah. It's much, much easier to teach a man how to fish when you have your own food at home. Like I could learn how to fish. It was easy for me to learn how to fish because I hadn't, I didn't, I wasn't hungry when I was fishing. So why am I not helping to kind of push that along? Yeah, I, I love. But they all, sorry, yeah, but they're all. Thank you. They're all as empowered as I can, as empowered as I can pop. Whatever I can give to them, I do, and I hope they all know that. I'm sure they do because they all call me every summer for jobs. <laughs> I do what I can. If not me, I put them in contact with somebody else, but. It's not just me talking. I talk, but I also make sure I'm a resource that absolutely can get them in the positions if possible. Yeah. And that's, and that's like the real thing. I think, you know, I am all about sharing. I'm all about sharing contacts, sharing information, especially when it's amongst, you know, my black brothers and sisters, because again, like, like information and knowledge is a tool and how you use it. Hopefully it, it, it fits well within what you're trying to achieve in this lifetime. Maybe I use the tool a little bit differently from you, so on and so forth, but we're here to like help each other. We're here to help each other yeah. and help to, and help to guide too, you know, like, and that's the real thing. And that's why I think we're all on this planet. It's like, we're all on this planet to individually graduate to higher levels of state of consciousness, but also help the collective. That's, that's the goal. The thing is we, that's the tough one. We all have our individual agendas, which are absolute real things um, because of just the way, you know, shit has been set up for people of color. But when we're all able to be free enough to pass those resources on is when, when a lot of that will change. Exactly. Like, I'm a firm yeah. believer in the power of, like, economic independence. Like, if I don't need your money, there's nothing you can tell me. 
Uh-huh. I try to put people in places or young people in places to make their own money. All of these things that empower them to make decisions, whether it just be I want to do something for myself, whether I want to get my mom something or not, who knows? But it's their, it's their prerogative to do what they want with their money. My goal is to help put that money in their pockets or at least put you in a space in which you can learn. Like, it's always, where can I, where's the best place I can put you? Yeah. That's always a game. You're going to learn one way or another with me. That's, that's the key. That's the key. So tapping into your personal life. So, so you are married. You are a husband. Can you talk about how being a partner to your wife has played a huge role in the person that you've become and continue to become in this lifetime? I think that question for sure twofold, right? It's, I think I've become a much different person and a much more evolved version of myself. For one, having to be a partner for my wife, but also my wife being my partner has contributed immensely to my growth. Um, but <clears throat> when you're a partner, you're a partner, right? It's, it's a place where you both have more to live for because I'm not solely living for myself anymore. I'm living, still living for myself. You can't forget that part about your life. But you're living for yourself and you're also living for somebody else. And the way my wife allows me to still be free enough to, yes, we're still living for each other, but we also are still two completely whole people independent of this marriage. Mm. So we're a marriage of two complete people as opposed to two people who are like so like dependent on each other. Like it's great to be dependent on each other. But I think independence, two independent people make probably for the best marriages. Not saying that independence means you're not relying on your partner and not putting faith in your partner, but two whole entire complete people don't need to find people to fill their spaces. Like I was not on the hunt to find a woman that filled these voids that I have. And she was not necessarily on the hunt to find a man that filled the voids that she had. It was like, this is who we both are, and we're two powerful humans independently, so how do we make sure we're doing the best decisions or making the best decisions for each other and ourselves together? But my wife just has always been there for me. She has been like the the, per, the balance. Because for those who know me know that if I got to work, there is really not much balance. It's work and that's it. But she's been the one who's absolutely taught me or encouraged me rather and always reminds me to stop and smell the flowers. Mm. Like I'm work, 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 cool. I'm you want to smell the flowers? I buy the field. She's like, stop and smell them. <laughs> like, what's good is the fact that you can buy all the flowers if you can't stop and smell them. Like that is our dynamic. Like, you want flowers? I'll buy them all. I can. She's like, Well, what good is you buying if you can't smell them? That's it. But that sen- that sense of balance has always kind of kept me level-headed and not not too far ahead, but also not worrying too much about what's behind me either. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that, you know, two, like a part, like in my opinion, like a, a great partnership are two whole people choosing to walk their individual paths together. Together, exactly, exactly. That, that, that to me is the recipe for a successful partnership. I'm not going to necessarily say marriage because some people are like, oh, I don't believe in marriage, but I'm saying successful partnership. Partnership. Right. 
And after a while, your your paths walking together clearly become the same path, but it that neither one of us necessarily forced the other to work walk on the other's path. Mm-hmm. That's important. Like we both happen to be here, and we're walking our own separate ways, walking the same direction. She's walking my way; I'm walking the other. We're both walking in the same direction, which is the key. That's that is the key. Amazing. Well, this is actually my favorite section of the podcast. It's called "Quick to the Heart." So these are very like quick fire round questions where the answers are not more than like a sentence or a word. So big question, Ronald, are you ready for this quick to the heart fire round questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite quote? If you feel like you're going through hell, keep going. Winston Churchill. Mm. Like, I'm a quote guy. I have, like, I work with words. So quotes are my thing. I have thousands probably in my database. But between that and Thomas Edison, um, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that did not work. One of those two are probably the, like, for sure that Winston, I think that Winston Churchill is the one. But if you feel like going through hell, if you feel like you're going through hell, keep going. Love that. Like, that is me in a nutshell. Love that. What... Or who is your biggest source of inspiration? My wife. Aw, she's going to be so excited when she hears that answer. (laughs) Not that she doesn't know it, but, you know, professing that publicly. Yeah, my wife is so much that I wanted another piece of artwork for my house. I had a piece of artwork made of her. And people always think, like, oh, my God, this is a surprise for your wife. My wife is like, no, that's for him. That ain't for me. He just, boy, it just made of me. It's just made of me. It's not me. It's just made of me. Yeah. There you go. Best advice you ever received or the best lesson you've ever learned? Uh, the best advice I've probably ever received is something that a lot of people have heard where it's like, don't let losses, don't let wins go to your head and losses go to your heart. Like, and uh, what is it? This game's home runs. Ah, damn. It's pretty much whatever you do today does not really affect tomorrow. Tomorrow's always going to be a new day. Yeah. Like, today's home runs don't win tomorrow's games. So you have to do the work every single day. That's the goal. Love it. What advice would you give to someone who feels like they have fallen short in life and cannot see their true light? I think that's where that Winston Churchill one kicks in. Like, if you feel like you're going to help, keep going. Like, you're always just, you're always a lot closer than you think to where you want to be. And people always give up right before they hit that breakthrough. So keep on going. Love that. What are you most proud of? Hmm. Funny. I, I feel like I don't think about that as much. But I do think I am most proud of, like, the effect that I've had on New York City. Like I said, Jen, mark my words. This is 2012. Today is June 8th. Give it some time. You will see how deeply rooted my artwork is in New York City, but no one knows it yet because everyone's living in their silos in their buildings. If everybody kind of looked up and paid attention, they realized how many places I've affected when it comes to um, Black education. But I'm definitely the, my most proud of the fact of the, the work that I do in, the work that I do for Black kids, me giving Black kids cool shit. That goes from schools to, I design stuff for Girl Scouts every year, Black Girl Scout troop. Like, I'm most proud of what I can do for black kids. Love that. 
What are you most looking forward to with your work and your personal life? Hmm. I think this answer encompasses both. I want to say fatherhood. Um, soon enough, that should be happening. My wife and I have been having the conversation of expanding our family. Amazing. Um, I think that'll do wonders for my personal life, but it'll also, it'll also create a whole new person that's going to create a whole new type of work because of a whole new purpose behind mm. it. And not simply, and the thing is, here's where the privilege kicks in. I have to always, always be aware of my privilege. It's not like oh, I'm having a child or I'm going to be having a child or so we're planning on having children. And my work now becomes, all right, I got to make sure I feed my family. My family's good. My family's not even here yet and they're good. And now it looks like, how do I make sure I'm telling these stories so my kids know how the story should be told? Yeah. So that, that purpose goes to, goes, isn't like I said, a lot of people you hear like, oh, I'm having kids. I got to, you know, my purpose now is to provide for them. Not my, it is to provide, but it's providing context for them. It's providing experience for them. And all of those things happen through artwork. So as much as of a creative or as much of a creative savant I think I am, imagine what my children are going to be, Jen. Imagine where I get to just teach them all the cool shit and teach them where to look out for that I messed up on the creative side. So whatever they want to do, they can do because I feel the same way and they have no choice to be better humans than me. That's, that is the perfect ending to this actually. So can you please give the listeners uh, your website and social media handles on where to follow you and just con- to continue to support you? Um, well, my website, probably easiest, right? RonaldDraperArt.com. So that's R-O-N-A-L-D-D-R-A-P-E-R-A-R-T-Art.com. And my Instagram is the same thing, but with an underscore. So RonaldDraper underscore art. And that's Draper with one P. Somehow people still spell my name with two Ps for some reason. If you think about paper, it's one P. I don't think, I don't know why I think Draper is two. I know it's. I mean, hey, people often mess up my last name, so it's it's totally fine. I, I I'm right in the same boat with you. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for for sharing your amazing, inspiring, and just all around just empowering story. I know that the listeners got so much out of it today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Open Heart Raw Story. I hope you were inspired and felt moved by the story that you heard today. If you enjoy this episode and want to listen to more, please subscribe to this podcast and follow Open Heart Raw Story on Instagram and Twitter. Until then, loves, take care of yourselves and lead your lives with an open mind, but most importantly, with an open heart. Take care. Hello everyone, welcome back to this guided meditation focusing on Ronald Draper's story. In Ron's story, we heard a lot about fear of failure and how Ron felt a great sense of confidence where there was no fear of failure and no fear of leaping into the unknown. 
So for tonight's guided meditation, we will be focusing on leaping into the unknown bravely and courageously. So sit up nice and tall and close the eyes. Lengthen through the crown of the head. Just take some nice deep breaths in the nose and out of the nose. And as you're taking some deep breaths in through the nose and out, maybe you start to think about all of your unknowns and how our unknowns beckons us to move forward and explore new ways of behavior and living. And as you're taking some nice deep breaths in through the nose and out, maybe you start to think about how every great move forward in your life begins with a leap of faith step into the unknown. And as you're taking some deep breaths in the nose and out, maybe you start to think about how can you allow your spirit to speak to you and deep listening to hear your spirit say, take that leap I'll be here to catch you. And as you're taking your last deep breaths in the nose and out, maybe you start to think about this idea that you cannot always wait for the perfect time. Sometimes you must dare to jump fully, bravely, and courageously. deep breath into the nose and out of the nose. Start to bring some small movements back into the space. And when you are ready, open your eyes. I thank you all for joining me for this guided meditation. I hope it was soul nourishing and fulfilling. I cannot wait to have you back to listen to the next episode of Open Heart, Raw Story. Until then, loves, take care of yourselves and lead your lives with an open mind, but most importantly, with an open heart.